Judges 6, 1 through 6. Alright, I... Yeah, there you go. Okay. Um, I might have to do a recheck on your wife because I, I, I had to slide down. Okay. I, I'm going to have to. Right. James, can you go get your mom? Tell her we're, tell her we're going to have to redo the sound check for her. Yeah, that'd be fine. All right, so I'll just go ahead and read my text. And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian for seven years. The hand of Midian prevailed against Israel, and because of the Midianites, the children of Israel made them the dens which are in the mountains and caves and strongholds. And so it was when Israel was sown that the Midianites came up, and the Amalekites and the children of the east, even they came up against them, and they encamped against them and destroyed the increase of the earth, Till thou come unto Gaza, and left no sustenance for Israel, neither sheep, nor ox, nor ass. For they came up with their cattle and their tents, and they came as grasshoppers for multitude. For both they and their camels were without number, and they entered into the land to destroy it. And Israel was greatly impoverished because of the Midianites, and the children of Israel cried unto the Lord. Is that good? And it came to pass when the children of Israel cried unto the Lord because of the Midianites... I ever heard that song at a youth conference. It's so awesome. And I was like, we have to get that, but
please don't go and ask him about anything about our dreams from 20 years ago. He'll remember everything. No, don't do that. <laughs> it's been a great time of fellowship and I've enjoyed it. And uh, I really enjoyed preaching the gospel and uh, the freedom that uh, you must have in Christ.
years ago had something posed to me that really opened my eyes to a few things, and that is, and this is a room is a perfect illustration of this, if we were to take people from another country who don't understand English and don't really know anything about what we're doing here, maybe people who weren't Christians, didn't know anything about our faith, and we put them up there in those rooms and they can't hear what's going on, but they can see what's going on. The question was given to me, what part of our service would they say is the worship service? We often say that the worship services are the song part of our service. And the question was asked, what part would they think is the worship service of our, song, our service? And began to think about it and where we think of worship many times. And then we think about the preaching service. But then my mind went to the last few minutes of the service where... We're on our face before God, crying out to Him. And I remember thinking, that's the moment they'd say, okay, now they're worshiping their God. Now they're worshiping. You know, we would say, man, we were worshiping. What a great song service or, or what a great time of fellowship or what a great message that we heard. But worship is when we fall before Him. See, praise is loud. Worship is quiet. And we're to have a sacrifice of praise with our lips. But worship's really when we kneel before God. And, and, I'm, and I don't say this, I'm not trying to manipulate anybody or anything like that. I just want you to know that I understand that you can pray anywhere. But boy, I tell you, I've appreciated the altar over the years and what that has meant to me. And in a little bit, we're going to have a chance to worship God. We've praised Him today. We're going to hear from His Word. And at the end of the service, we're going to get a chance to worship God. I was sharing with Pastor Brian today, I said, I remember when I was, the last time I was here, August of uh, 2012, and, and yes, I do have a good memory, so again, I got some good ones about Brother Brian, meet me right after the service, and we'll talk about the um, uh, Game Boy giveaway uh, many years ago, we'll, we'll, talk, we'll talk about that, some of you remember that, but uh, no, we, I said, I remember at the 25th anniversary, they had a time capsule that they opened up. And all, there are all these letters uh, that were written from members of the church in the early days of the church, and they read through those. And I remember telling him at the time, I, I looked over at my wife and I said, this is dangerous in some churches. Because the, le- the question was asked in this letter, what do you hope to see at Lighthouse Baptist Church at our 25th anniversary? And I said, you know how many churches have changed their doctrinal positions and changed all kinds of things about their, their stance on the Word of God? And I thought, man, I, I know they haven't, but you know that for some churches this would be scary. And we began to listen, and, and there was a, a theme among the letters. We, did, we went back. I, I said, I thought that was awesome. I went back to my church. We wrote letters uh, like that year, and we're going to open them up in a couple of years here. And uh, I know what the theme will be in our letters because I know what was going on in our society. And people said in those letters, they said, we are, they're, they're going to say, I hope that in our 50th anniversary that our church still preaches out of the King James Bible. That's going to be the number one thing that's said in our letters. The number one thing that was said in the letters here at Lighthouse Baptist Church were, I hope that they're still given an invitation. And I remember thinking, that's kind of weird that so many people wrote that same thing. And it, it just stirred in me that maybe there was something going on in the world or in this community or whatever where churches were doing away with an invitation to respond to God's word. And, and I thought, well, I'm glad they haven't done that. And I, and I remember being a part of this church and seeing uh, people so readily available to the Lord to say, I will fall on my knees and, and worship you. And, you know, we, we vote to discontinue that invitation every time we hear the Lord prick our heart or feel the Lord prick our heart and we say, 
I don't need to respond. I can do it later. I'll deal with the Lord at home. What we're really saying is, Lord, I don't need to respond right now. You spoke to me right now, but I don't need to respond right now. And if you're anything like me, and you've got a little bit of ADD, and you say, I'll talk to the Lord about this later, you won't talk to the Lord about it later. You'll go home, there'll be a game on. You'll go home, and you'll find plenty of stuff to eat. I I find that a lot. Uh, I find that no matter where I go, I find stuff to eat. I just... Kind of a theme of my life. You know, we, we will find other things to distract us. And when the Lord speaks to us, I try to encourage our people at our church that, the, and, I, and I use the phrase a lot, that our piano is not the Holy Spirit. Some people will say, well, I just, I'm going forward because the piano's playing. Don't come forward because the piano's playing. If the Lord speaks to you in the middle of the message, get up and come to the altar. And, and if the Lord, and I always said, and don't come because the Lord spoke to you in a message in that, only that. I said, if the Lord speaks to you in a message, respond to him. If the Lord didn't speak to you, respond to him. And say, Lord, I need you to speak to me. I said, if I can preach from, if I open up God's word and I give you God's word and it does nothing for you, then if nothing else, come and say, Lord, get a hold of this pastor because his message is flat right now. And, and I, I invested time to be here and I got nothing from this message. Lord, help this pastor. And I said, for one, you, do, you promise me you'll do that. That'll help me with my uh, humbleness because I can always assume that when you're praying, I didn't really help you. I was just... You were saying, Lord, this guy's bad. Just help this guy out uh, with, with this message. And so, but that song is one of my favorite songs. And it's what a great reminder for us that worship's not always a song. A song can lead us to worship. But man, we can worship God all throughout the service, but especially on our face before Him. And I say all that to say as we get into the message tonight, again, these are not necessarily messages that I would have. In my mind, said, This is what I want to bring for a revival message. I want to come and preach a revival and it just all be like a pep rally and let's all get excited for the Lord and all these things. Uh, but you'll begin to see a, a thread of a theme here that the Lord was working on in these messages. And I was telling uh, Brother Eric Glennon all last night, you know, it's been many years since we came here. And, and I know some of you have said, Man, I almost didn't recognize you when you came in. Uh, Brother Hepworth told me that. He said, You know, you, know, you had. A little, a little more hair, I'll promise you, it wasn't much uh, more. I said, this church is the first place I really began to realize I was going bald. Uh, I remember thinking, I stood in front of the mirror and I'd see plenty of hair. And then I'd go in there in, in the church service and you all had that camera way up there in that you know, spot up there in the top of the sanctuary. And I remember seeing that what we'd, our, our TV service that was on the, on the Tuesday nights. And I remember thinking, man, I look, that camera makes me look really bald. And uh, I was like... But I stand right here in the mirror and I see plenty of hair. So I'm like, the problem is they just aren't zoomed in enough. Uh, that's the problem. It's, it's the camera lens. Uh, but that's when I began to realize. And then, uh, you know, definitely the hair changed. And uh, I, a couple of years later, I said, I, you know, I'm losing all this. I just want to shave all this. I just want to shave all this down. And so I tried to get my wife to let me do it. She wouldn't let me do it. She was afraid I, I, I was... I was well over 300 pounds at that time, and she said, you know, she was worried I was going to have those hot dog rolls in the back of my head. Y'all know, don't lie, you know what I'm talking about. She was worried I was going to have, like, you know, uh, sausage rolls back there. And so I got her to make a deal with me that if I could get down to one chin, she'd let me shave it off. And fortunately, I didn't say I had to stay at one chin. I just had to get down. So I lost a bunch of weight, and I shaved it down, and then... I looked like a giant thumb, so I had to grow some facial hair. I mean, it was, that was me right there. And, uh, you know, so I said, I got to grow some facial hair. And here's what I found out. A beard 
covers a multitude of chins. Uh, and so uh, you can just cover that all up right there. Brother Brian, you understand, right? And uh, <laughs> we, uh, but you know, so I, I know, uh, you know, it, it definitely, the looks have changed and stuff. And so it, it has been a while. The mirror tells me it's been a while. But I still remember very vividly our time in coming here. And I remember really seeking out God's will. We were in a situation where, and I shared a little bit with Pastor Brian earlier, I was at the point in my life early in my ministry where I was about to just quit ministry. Uh, we were not in a good situation, and I felt like, well, it must be me. Uh, maybe I'm just not cut out for ministry, and I was ready to just give up. And we came up here, we candidated, I was here for a weekend, and uh, I went home and I told my, my pastor in Bluffton, Indiana, I said, uh, all right, I'm going to resign. I'm, I'm going to Ludington. And he said, wow, you were there the first weekend and they already voted and called you as their youth pastor? I said, no, they haven't even talked about it yet. But I know that's where the Lord wants me. And I said, if I got to go there and get a job at Walmart and work and, and just be in that church, that's the church where God wants me. And he said, well, I'm just telling you, if you resign and you tell the church you're resigning and they call you and say, we don't want you. Uh, you, you, you can't take this re- resignation back. I said, that's okay. We're, we're leaving. And so we planned a going away dinner. And uh, I had a U-Haul truck packed up, loaded up in the front of my house. We were doing a going away dinner. And uh, it was my last Sunday night in Bluffton. And I'm thinking, okay, Brother Pelfrey, uh, a phone call would be nice uh, right about now. And because uh, I really don't, I'm, I'm trying to follow the Lord, but I really don't want to work at Walmart, okay? And uh, all of a sudden, I'm at the going away dinner at my church. And I get a call from uh, Brother Pelfrey. He says, hey, we'd like to have you come and be our youth pastor. And I said, okay, well, I'll be there tomorrow. And he said, what? And uh, he said, you, you're trying to find a, 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 come up here and look for a place? I said, no, I, I already got a place in Scottville. I said, I'm renting from uh, Virginia and Beth Collins. And he said, they didn't tell me. He said, I could have had people ready to help you unload. I said, that's all right. You got a missions conference starts tomorrow and I want to be there uh, for it. And so my family will be there in the morning. And we came up and I remember Aaron Hendrickson, he just kept looking at me and said, you're already here. He looked at me like five times. He just said, dude, you're already here. I was young enough to be called dude back then, but uh, not anymore. But, uh, you know, he said, I just can't believe you're here. But we just knew that this was where God wanted us. And I believe that two of the most important questions we can ask is, what in the world is God doing in my life? And how does he want me to respond to it? How can I learn and, and how can I hear from God and respond to what he wants out of my life. And maybe a way to get at the same issue would be is if you had to take a pen and paper and write a paragraph describing the love of God, what would you write? If you had to capture how God is loving you right now, what would you write? Well, tonight I want to look at a passage in which I think it has the potential to change the way we frame our thoughts on the love of God. Look in your Bibles in Judges chapter number 6. We're going to kind of go through Judges chapter 6 and chapter 7 here. But we're going to start in chapter 6, just these first six verses. The Bible says, And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian prevailed against Israel. And because of the Midianites, the children of Israel made them the dens which are in the mountains and caves and strongholds. And in it was when Israel had sown that the Midianites came up and the Amalekites and the children of the east, even they came up against them and they encamped against them and destroyed the increase of the earth 
till thou come unto Gaza, and left no sustenance for Israel, neither sheep nor ox nor ass. For they came up with their cattle and their tents, and they came as grasshoppers for multitude, for both they and their camels were without number, and they entered into the land to destroy it. And Israel was greatly impoverished because of the Midianites, and the children of Israel cried unto the Lord. You find Israel here in this moment in really a sorry state. It's hard to imagine God's people would be in this kind of condition, literally living in a fear that would lead them to abandon their homes, their town, their villages, and living like animals in the rocks and the caves of the mountains. Literally in such fear that it was worthless for them at that point to even grow crops because as soon as they would grow the crops, their enemies would steal them and they'd get nothing out of it. Imagine farmers with no livestock anymore. And you read these words and you'd be tempted to ask, well, where's God? Where's the love of God in this story? Where's this covenant faithfulness that we've heard about in Israel? Where's his goodness? Where's his power? Where's his presence? God, where are you? And it says in verse 1, the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian seven years. And I'll start tonight by saying you will never understand this moment. You'll never understand the things that happen next uh, that we're going to look at uh, unless you understand that this moment is not God turning his back on Israel. This is actually God turning toward his children. Oh, they're in the hand of the Midianites. God turned his back on them. No, that's not what happened. Just like when you discipline your child, it's not that you don't care. It's that you do care that leads you to that discipline. Years ago, actually, while we were here, uh, we had, you know, we're trying to raise up our child and Caleb's real young and we'd always tell him, Caleb, we spank you because we love you. He probably thought, man, you really love me. You know, we spank you because we love you and we're trying to get you to quit making these same mistakes over and over again. And we had one of our bus kids one night, he decided he wanted to come to church on Sunday night, so we picked him up and we took him home and I'll never forget on the way home, he just, he tells Caleb, I don't know, my parents don't ever spank me. And Caleb just looked at him and said, that's so sad. Your parents don't love you. And uh, I always wondered what happened when that kid got home uh, and told his parents, why aren't you spanking me? Why don't you love me? But this is a moment of God turning his face toward his children. This is a response of a God of love. And so if he, if God were going to turn his back on his covenant, what he would do is he'd say, hey, you want idols? Go ahead, have them. Just, that's okay. Just have, if he was turning his back, I mean, he'd say, fine, you want your idols, have at it. You want to set your own rules, have at it. But God would work to turn the hearts of his people toward him. And that's what he's doing here. He's quite willing to use difficult life circumstances to get our attention. To call us again to find our hope and rest and life in him and in him alone. To forsake those idols that we she sang about tonight that we so easily serve and to quit finding joy and trying to write our own rules and do our own thing and trying to call us back to him. When I was a teenager, I did something stupid one day and which, you know, I know that's, you're kind of repeating yourself. I was a teenager and I did something stupid. I was at my grandmother's house and me and my cousin Brad were throwing a football back and forth. I threw a football up in the tree and uh, I climbed up there to get the football out of the tree. And he said, I, I bet you can't. I bet you can't climb all the way to the top of the tree. And as many stories with teenagers go, there was a girl 
who was nearby, and he called me out in front of her. So I was like, okay, got to shimmy on up to the top. I know it's hard to picture now, but back then I could shimmy up things, okay? And so I shimmied up to the top of the tree, and I'm up there, and I'm actually looking down at the um, electric pole that's in my grandmother's yard. And that's how high up I was. The tree was only maybe two feet higher than, taller than where I was at at that moment. And the branches are going back and forth. And I, he said, all right, come on down. You proved your point. And I took a step, and I don't know if the branch moved and I missed a step or if the branch broke. All I know was the next moment I was on the ground. And it was about 40 feet that I fell. Now, fortunately, normally you fall 40 feet. That might be the last thing you do. But if you've ever watched Price is Right, and you've seen that Plinko game, where that little disc like bounces around, that was me going down the tree. and I, So it was slowing me down uh, as I went. And so I'm falling and I'm hitting the branches. Fortunately, I did that because it, it took me to the left of her patio. And so I didn't land on the concrete. I landed uh, in the, the yard there. And I, I wake up and, uh, man, they rushed me to the hospital. That girl was not impressed, let me just say. Uh, never saw her again. Uh, but she was not impressed. But, you know, I, I'll go to the hospital. And, and I remember the, the nurses, they're talking to me and, and I'll never forget one nurse, she said, uh, she didn't say it to me, but she's behind me and I can hear her talking. Not the most professional bedside manner here. She tells the other nurse, this kid, you know, he's talking to us, he doesn't think his family has insurance. They were talking about doing exploratory surgery to see what was going on inside. And she said, I don't think he's going to make it. I don't think we need to pile on a bunch of extra surgeries for no reason. And I'm like, do I get a vote in this? <laughs> Let's just go all out, okay? Let my parents figure out the money part later on. It's their debt, not mine, okay? Let's, let's just go all out. And so they tell me, I, I, I go through a surgery. They, they did an exploratory surgery. They thought my, my pancreas had been destroyed, which is kind of a problem. They opened me up. They find out it wasn't my pancreas. It was my spleen. They had taken my spleen out. They sewed me back up. I've got a cast on my arm, broke my ribs, uh, my elbow, broke, uh, cracked a pelvic bone. I did all, broke all kinds of I've, Hardly had any broken bones my entire life, but all in that one day. I just had all this stuff. I wake up, I'm in a neck brace. And they tell me, hey, you got two broken vertebrae in your neck. You're probably never going to walk again. That, that was what they told me. This was Saturday. We called churches. We had everybody praying as much as we could. And uh, they come in there Sunday afternoon. And they, they set me down on the same. They said, okay, well, now we're going to do this uh, x-ray. And that's very important. That you don't move. We're going to take this neck brace off. Don't move. They take the neck brace off. And again, dumb teenager. I said, I'm fine. <laughs> They're like, oh. you know, I said, no, I'm fine. They did the x-ray. They said, we don't understand it. There were two broken vertebrae yesterday. There's nothing today. So I went from probably going to die to probably never going to walk again. So they said, well, you're probably going to be here for about six months or six weeks in the hospital. Six weeks in the hospital, and then maybe we can get you out of here. Six days later, I went home. Six days. It, I, a large part of that, obviously, is you're young, you heal better. Now I sleep wrong, and I'm done for a month. Okay, I understand. But I healed better back then. But also, it was just the Lord working. Six days I laid in that hospital bed. Couldn't do anything. Couldn't eat, couldn't walk, couldn't do anything. And uh, just dying for some food, you know, and... They give you food, you eat like one sip of soup broth, and you're like, oh, I'm stuffed. <laughs> you, know, you think you're hungry, but you're really, uh, you got no room to put it in after all those days. But they, I'm sitting there, and I remember God 
getting a hold of my heart in those six days. God had called me to preach when I was 12. Here I was, 16. I knew God called me to preach. But at 16, I started to say, well, we'll see. We'll see what happens after high school. Maybe I might go into, maybe I'll go in the military and be a chaplain. Well, maybe, maybe I'll try that. That was my, without thinking it directly, that was my way out. We'll see what God wants later. God had already told me four years ago what he wanted. Well, but things might change, and, and I, I need to have that opportunity to maybe make a different plan. And for six days, God worked on my heart. And God used adverse circumstances to get a hold of my heart. And let me just say, God is more concerned with your spiritual problems than he is your physical problems. He can change your physical problem at any time. He can fix that at any time. But that hardened heart is something that you're going to have to have a part in changing. You're going to have to submit to his will. And I'm so thankful that God put me in a hospital bed for six days and got a hold of my heart. And that's what he's trying to do to Israel here. He's trying to get a hold of their heart. Not just say, let's get rid of the Midianites. He's trying to get the people of Israel to turn back to him. And perhaps the opposition that some of us feel and the difficulties that some of us are in are not, in fact, the trials of the enemy. Maybe they're the discipline of a loving Heavenly Father. Now, I want to caution you here. We have a tendency that when people go through trials and they go through trials, we think God's really trying to get a hold. When's God going to be able to get their attention? When we go through trials, we say, boy, the devil really is mad at me. Boy, I've really made the devil mad. You know, he hates it when people serve the Lord. But I must be doing something really good because I've made the devil mad. Maybe let's take the opposite approach. Let's, let's assume the best of our brother and sister in Christ and say, man, God's really working in their life. Or the devil's really fighting them in their life. But in my life, man, God must be trying to get my, maybe God's trying to get my attention. Now, that doesn't mean every trial you go through is discipline. But I think the first question we ought to ask when we go through trial is, Lord, what are you trying to accomplish in my life? What are you trying to teach me through this? What are you trying to teach me? It's amazing how quickly we assume God has forsaken, us, has forsaken us while we are actually forsaking Him. God would, would bring those things into our lives in order to reclaim our hearts because in His love, He's more concerned that our hearts would run after Him than that our circumstances would get easier. Now maybe some of you that God is calling you back to Him. Maybe, maybe there's a, even a slight deviation from where your heart was with him before. He's calling you back to that. The greatest allegiance that you're supposed to have, that is to him. And he's calling you back to finding your greatest pleasure in him. And that to find no longer to find your joy in living outside of his boundaries. And to love him and his will. And he brings you to the point where you cry out, Lord, help me. Let me just say, that cry is the beginning of him getting your attention. That cry is the beginning of him turning your heart back to him. That is God being faithful to his covenant. So how do you define the love of God? Well, God hears that cry. and Look at verse 7 through 10. It came to pass when the children of Israel cried unto the Lord because of the Midianites that the Lord sent a prophet unto the children of Israel, which said unto them, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you forth out of the house of bondage, and I delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians, out of the hand of all that oppressed you, and drave them out from before you, and gave you their land. And I said unto you, I am the Lord your God, fear not the God of the Amorites, in whose land you dwell, but ye have not obeyed my voice. 
So people are crying out, God, deliver us. Now pay attention to your Bibles here. God, deliver us. And God sends them not a deliverer, a prophet. A prophet. That's like being in a terrible accident, trapped in your car. And I know I'm injured. And I'm able to reach my phone and I call 911. And the dispatcher says, hey, okay, I'm going to send you out a reporter. We got it. Don't worry. We got a, a journalist on their way. I don't need a reporter. I need a rescuer. Where's the EMT? And the fact that God sends a prophet tells us that he's after something more than just a situational relief. The reason he sends a prophet is a clear message of God saying, I want you back. I want your heart. I want to create in you something, not just outside of you, but inside of you. And so I've got a message I want you to hear. So first, I'm going to send you a prophet. There are essentially three things that the prophet says as the messenger of God. The first one, he says, every good thing you've enjoyed came from God's hand. Don't you get it? I brought you up out of Egypt. I delivered you from bondage. I delivered the nations into your hands. I provided for you. I was willing to make you my people. Isn't it amazing how many times in the Old Testament that other nations feared God because what God had done on Israel's behalf, but Israel forgot everything God did on their behalf? They had a better memory than his own people did. All the good things in your story, all the wonderful things you've experienced, they've all come from my hand. It's been me all along, God says. The second thing he says is, don't you understand, because I've redeemed you, you're mine. You belong to me. Look, if you're God's child, you have to never view your life in any situation or any location or any relationship as belonging to you. You have been bought with a price. The shed blood of Jesus Christ. So none of it belongs to you. None of my life belongs to me. I have to look at life as not belonging to me and that occasionally I want to say, this is my life and I want to occasionally spend some time in worship to God. And I give pieces of what belongs to me back to God. No, no, no. It all belongs to Him. I always hate people say, well, you know, the, the tithe is the Lord's. We understand what that phraseology means in Scripture, but what they mean sometimes is, okay, that's the Lord's portion. I'll do what I want with the rest. No, it's all the Lord's. The Lord just says, okay, put those tithes in the storehouse. Put those in the church, but he's still in charge of the rest of my 90. He has to have the preeminence in those things. It's all his. It all belongs to him. And then God says something very significant. He says, I haven't turned, you've turned. It's not that I've turned my back on you. You have not been obeying me. And I would say to you tonight, don't waste your spiritual and emotional energy worrying about the faithfulness of God. Don't worry if God has lost track or lost control. God has been faithful. God is faithful. God will always be faithful. He cannot deny himself. So don't worry about his faithfulness. Worry about the faithfulness of the one you see in the mirror. Because all of us, if there's a faithfulness problem, it's on us, not on him. God says, don't you understand what happened here? It's not that I failed in my promises to you. Not that I've gotten tired of you. Not that I've turned my back on you. You've walked away from me. And it's easy to be unfaithful. 
Now, your idols might not look like the idols of the Old Testament. But don't fall into thinking that idolatry was just this problem in the Old Testament or in some tribe in some foreign country. Idolatry is a struggle for us today. We put people and places and things or experience above our Redeemer. To look to creation for what I can only find in the Creator. To live with a heart that's not ruled by God anymore, but ruled by comfort and of pleasure and ease and position or possessions or the love of some other human being. Maybe that friend has become too important. Maybe that girlfriend or boyfriend is just too important. Maybe your house has become too important. Maybe being right has become more important. Where might, where might the love of God be calling you back? What, what one of those sayings maybe jumped out at you was, yes, maybe I've, I've put too much importance on that. Where has he troubled your life to maybe get your attention so that you would bring your heart back to him? That's not God turning his back on you. That's God's love. That's God's grace. It's grace that God first sent a prophet before he sent a deliverer. So what happens next in this passage is specifically designed then to, by God to help his people to understand that hope and rest can only be found in him. Maybe this next section, you know, he said, why would you send a prophet? Now it's when he sends a deliverer, you call that a deliverer? Look at verses 11 through 16. There came an angel of the Lord. He sat under an oak which was in Ophrah that pertained to Joash the Abiezrite. And his son Gideon threshed wheat by the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him and said unto him, The Lord is with thee, thou mighty man of valor. Gideon said unto him, O my Lord, if the Lord be with us, why then is all this befallen us? Where be all his miracles which our fathers told us of, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord hath forsaken us and delivered us into the hand of the Midianites. And the Lord looked upon him and said, Go in this thy might, and thou shalt save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have not I sent thee? And he said unto him, O my Lord, wherewith shall I save Israel? Behold, my family is poor in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, Surely I will be with thee, and thou shalt smite the Midianites as one man. Now look, you couldn't possibly find a more unlikely deliverer than Gideon. I mean, where do we find him? The first thing we see right away is this guy's got a big fear problem. He's threshing wheat in a wine press. And if you study out the culture of the Old Testament, the grain of wheat would be trampled or beaten. And then in some place where there's a breeze, the grain of wheat would be tossed up and the breeze would blow and the chaff would be separated and the pure grains then would fall down. Often a big cloth would be taken. A person would then beat that uh, wheat with a cloth until the chaff would be separated and somebody would get on one end of the cloth, somebody on the other end, and they would do this until the chaff had blown away. Guess what? You need to do this outside in a breeze. You needed to do this in a place where there's wind and Gideon's doing it in a wine press. This is the Old Testament definition of futility. Why is he doing it there? Because he's afraid. Because he's afraid. He's afraid of the very people that God is sending him to. Why? Why would God use such a man? Well, Gideon not only has a fear problem, but he also has a little bit of a theology problem. He says, God, I hear that you're saying that the Lord is with us, but where are all these wonderful deeds that our fathers have told us of? Look around. Doesn't look like God's with us. Looks to me like God has forsaken us. If I look at the evidence, I don't see the hand of God. 
Now, if I could make a, this theological point, what Gideon's doing here is very dangerous. Now, look, there will be moments in your life where God's work will confuse you. Moment in your life where you're not going to completely understand what he's doing. And it's very dangerous for you to look at the evidence and say, perhaps God isn't all that I thought he'd be. It's very dangerous. What are we called to stand on? Not the visual evidence of our circumstances, but on the Word of God. We're to stand on the sure Word of God. And even in moments where I don't understand, and even in moments where I can't see what He's doing, and and I can't see Him near, and where emotionally it doesn't feel like He's close, I don't hang on to the emotions. I hang on to His promises. I hang on to His Word. Gideon also had a family problem. He says, Lord, my family's poor, and I'm the least in my father's house. What he's saying is, uh, Lord, you got the wrong address. You can't actually be thinking of me. There's a bit of irony when God addresses Gideon as a mighty man of valor. So far, we've seen no valor. Then God says this. The Lord said to him, six very important words, Surely I will be with thee. He says, you don't understand, Gideon. Your ability, your calling isn't based on your courage. It's not based on your knowledge. It's not based on your understanding. It's not based on your family identity. It's based on one thing. I'm with you. A covenant-keeping God has invaded Gideon's life. And now Gideon can have hope. Why? Not because Gideon's strong, but because his God is strong. You have hope, Gideon, because of who I am, God says. Now we do it all the time in the midst of life. We're always assigning identity to ourselves. What's the identity that we assign to ourselves? I went through this a couple years ago in my, my mind, kind of thinking of these things as we, we have these identities that we have and uh, what we are known as by, from certain people. I'm, I'm Dawn's husband. I'm uh, my kid's parents. I'm the pastor at Calvary Road Baptist Church. And I have these different identities of, of different things. And there's people, I pastor in a town where I grew up. That's always kind of interesting uh, when you meet people that knew you before you were saved or they knew my family. Uh, most of you don't know my family situation. I grew up in a drug addict's home. It was not at all a Christian environment. My grandpa got saved later in life, actually preached at the church I now pastor, and somehow my sister happened to be with him the day that they went. It was about 20 minutes from our house. She said, oh, we'd love to come here. And an old couple in the church said, we'll pick you up. We didn't have a church bus ministry. They had like 20 people in the church. They said, we'll start picking you up. And they started picking us up. And we started coming through. My parents were more than glad to send us. Get them out of the house. Get, 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 get some time free. And they'd send us Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. And this old couple would drive. They lived like literally right down the road from the church. They would drive 20 minutes to pick us up, 20 minutes back, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. And I, I grew up coming to church that way. And, and for years, I remember we prayed for years for my parents to get saved. And, and my mom finally got saved. And then a couple years later, my stepdad started coming to church. And after 30 years of praying for my stepdad, uh, he got saved and uh, he got baptized. I'll never, I'll never forget, the, he got baptized on the, my pastor who has now passed away, Wade Sheffield. Uh, he stayed in our church after he retired. On the last Sunday he ever got to attend before he died, I got to baptize my stepdad who we had been praying for for over 30 years uh, to get saved. And I remember as a kid when God called me to preach, 
That was a big excuse in my mind. Lord, it can't be me. I remember in our church there was a, another young man that had surrendered to preach a month before I did. And I remember thinking, well, Lord, maybe I'm just emotional because he got called to preach. And, and I, I, now I want to do it, but I can't do it. I mean, that kid's got Christian parents. He, he's got everything going for him. I, my, my parents don't even come to church. I go home and there's drugs and there's all these things going on in the home. Hey, it, it can't be what you want. Uh, it's odd now I look back and I finally surrendered to the Lord. And about six months later, that kid who surrendered to preach a month before I did, he, he got saved. And he came forward and he said, I've been trying my best to work my way to, in favor with God. And I thought, maybe if I just do more, maybe I'll surrender to preach. That'll get, make these doubts go away. But he said, I'm not even saved. I was like, I almost let an unsaved guy keep me from surrendering to God's will. You know, in our life, we, we sometimes think, Lord, I think I know what would make sense. But you can't possibly want to use me to do these things, Lord. God is calling us to do things. It's not our, it's not our background that makes it possible for him to use us. It's the God in us. But we assign these identities in our life. This is a man who forgot who he was. This is a man who forgot who he was and forgot that life and rest and ability are found in those six words, surely I will be with you. I with you. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who created all, the one who rules it all, the Lord Almighty is with you. Now get up, Gideon, and go. Then he decides he's going to go, and we say, you call this a deliverer. The next time we get into Scripture in chapter 7, we might think, and you call this an army? This deliverer is supposed to use this army to do something? Verse 2 of chapter 7. The Lord said to Gideon, the people that are with thee are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel vaunt themselves against me, saying, mine own hand hath saved me. Now therefore go to, proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, whosoever is fearful and afraid, let him return and depart early from Mount Gilead. And there returned of the people 20 and 2,000, and there remained 10,000. So he had 32,000 people. He says, go tell them if they're scared, they can go. And they said, peace out, Gideon. I'm going home. You just gave me permission. He said, the people are too many. If, if I use 32,000 people to deliver, they'll say, wow, we were, we were great. Man, we were really strong. They're going to vaunt themselves. He said, take them down the water and after that, he says, try them there. He shall be, he said, that whom I say unto thee, uh, this shall go with thee, the same shall go with thee. And whosoever I say unto thee, this shall not go with thee, the same shall not go. So he brought down the people in the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, Everyone that lappeth of the water with his tongue, as the dog lappeth him, that thou set by himself. Likewise, everyone that boweth down upon his knees to drink. And the number of them that lapped, putting their hand to their mouth, were 3,300 men. But the rest of the people bowed down upon their knees to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, By the 300 men that lapped will I save you, and deliver the Midianites into thine hand. And let all the other people go, everyone to his own place. 32,000. Now down to 300. It almost seems irrational when you read the words that the Lord says to Gideon when he says, you got too many people. Too many. We've heard that the Midianites would come down to Israel like locusts, that they had more camels and horses with them than could possibly be numbered. How could it be possible that there's too many people with 32,000? Not a whole huge army in comparison to what they were facing. And the reason, reason was the people that are with the are too many, he said, because they'll vaunt themselves up against me. They'll say they've done it by the might of their own hand. 
He's saying about the pride of the human heart. After being laid low, living in caves, they're so scared they're living in caves right now. And all it would take is one victory for them to suddenly go, hey, look at us. Man, we're pretty good. You think, that's foolish. It's us. One victory. One, one time. We do something for them. I've, I've known people that won't follow the Lord in witnessing, and all of a sudden they win one person to the Lord, and they're like set for life. Remember that one time I led this guy to the Lord? I won't say names, and, but we had a, a missionary here years ago. Pastor Brian, uh, we, the guy came in, and he said, uh, Pastor Brian was asking me, he said, I'm reading some of your letters, and you know, I, I'm glad you get to see a lot of neat things around the world, but can you tell us about some of your soul winning? And the guy got really defensive. Well, last year I led my grandma to the Lord. And Pastor Brian was like, that's all you got. Not, not saying it's not great that your grandmother was the Lord, but you, you aren't even telling me of other people that you're trying to win to the Lord. I understand people will reject the gospel, but are you at least giving them a chance to reject it? And that, that's our, our responsibility. So, man, one victory. And we're like, man, I'm good now. I've got that one thing I can go back. It's like that guy that played high school football that's still... 70 years old, talking about the touchdown he scored in the championship game. One victory. And they would say, I can do this. I don't need God. How quickly we forget our dependency. How quickly we forget how little we control and how weak we actually are and how foolish we can be when one victory would make us to turn and say, we don't need God. So God says, I won't put my people in that situation because I'm after their hearts. I'm not after that victory. I'm after their dependency. I'm after their faith. I'm after their willingness to follow me. I'm after worship. I'm not going to put my army in a situation where there's any way possible they could think that they did it. Can I tell you, that's God's grace. Now, I think that if I had been Gideon at that moment at 22,000 left, when God said, if any man that's afraid could leave, I'd say, wait up, guys. I'm catching up. I'm scared now, too. Too many of you left. I would have been breathless, but God's not done. So he ends up with 300 men. Not the kind of army that you'd envision is going to take on the power of the Midianites. But then you think, what kind of battle plan is this? Verse 15. And so it was, Gideon heard the telling of the dream, the interpretation of the others, that he worshipped, returned to the host of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord hath delivered into your hand the host of the Midian, a host of Midian. And he divided the 300 into three companies. He put a trumpet in every man's hand with empty pitchers and lamps within the pitchers. And he said to them, Look on me and do likewise. And behold, when I come to the outside of the camp, it shall be that as I do, so shall ye do. When I blow with the trumpet... And I and all that are with me, then blow ye the trumpets also on every side of the camp, and say, The sword of the Lord and of Gideon. Now imagine 300 guys hearing this battle plan. You think our political leaders sound confused sometimes. Wait a minute. We're going to take on the Midianites, and our weapon of choice is a pitcher and a trumpet. Can we get a new captain? <laughs> can, we, can we hold a vote here? We all, uh, you know, will allow all of you to get trumpets. That's what you're going to carry into battle. Man, get me a trumpet. And all of you get jars and clay jars and put a torch in them. That's all the weapons you need. And when you you shout the sword of the Lord of Gideon, it's in ways here the craziest irrationality of this battle plan that is the exact point of what God's trying to do. You have to know that trumpets and jars and torches have no power 
whatsoever. He said, you're going to use something that there's no way you're ever going to say, that's what made it happen. You're going to have to know God did it. I said last night, we all want a miracle of God. We just want to watch somebody else go through the miracle because we don't want to be in need of a miracle. He said, I'm going to put this, these trumpets in your hand. If Midian's going to be defeated, it's going to be at the hand of the Almighty God because he's going to have to do something with those trumpets that no man can do. And something with those jars and something with those torches and something with those voices that is miraculous or there's no hope. So at night, they sneak down there, the three groups of 100. They surround Midian and I always think in my mind, these 300 guys holding the trumpet, holding their jar and thinking, oh man, I bet they prayed like they've never prayed before. I got a trumpet, I got a jar, all the Midianites are way over there. And they smash the jars and they scream out, The sword of the Lord of Gideon! And the Midianites are so confused that, that this sudden light, sudden noise, they think they're being invaded and they, they, they wake up and, uh, man, they, there's no weapons there, but the Israelites haven't moved a step, but they wake up, they start you know, panicking, they start slaying one another because they don't know who's the enemy. They don't know who's a Midianite, who's an Israeli. They don't know what's going on. They start killing one another. And in fear, they begin to run. And now Israel begins to pursue after them, and they continue to pursue after them until the Midianites are finally destroyed. And in chapter 8, verse 28, it says there was quietness in Israel there for 40 years. You see, God chose Gideon precisely because Gideon was weak. Why? Because God's grace is sufficient. His strength is made perfect in our weakness. Now listen, we love the story of a hero. We love the story of a strong man who took care of a problem. We love the story of a wise man who figured out a great plan. As the song says, I did it my way. We love that story of somebody who just took on the world in their own strength. And the reality is, though, we are all weak and very dependent. We are created to be dependent on God. If you take nothing else from this message tonight, I hope you take this thought. Your weakness is not in the way of what God would do. Your delusions of strength is. The fact that you think you're strong. Pastor Brian, how many times have you seen teenagers begin to date and instead of saying, I'm weak, I'm going to set some boundaries. They say, I'm strong, I can get right up by the line. And I can resist the temptation to take that next step. God never said fight temptation. He said resist temptation. Flee from temptation. You know why? Because you're not as strong as you think you are. You're not as strong as you think you are. Your weakness is not in the way of what God would do, but your delusions of strength is. When you convince yourself you're strong and you're able and you're wise and you're righteous, you won't seek the grace that can only be found in Him. You know why? Because you don't think you really need it. Gideon would have never followed if he didn't know he was weak. If he hadn't encountered his weakness and come to understand God's strength, he would have never followed him. And that's why the army is as small as it is. That's why the battle, is as, the battle plan is as weird as it is. Because God is saying at the end of this, I want Israel to realize that their only hope is ever found in me. I'm not calling you just to stay away from the Midianites. I'm calling you to come unto me. I'm calling you to come to me. I'm calling you away from yourself because of that, uh, that very self-reliance in your life is what I'm seeking to attack. So I'll have to make you uncomfortable. 
I'll have to make you uncomfortable with your idolatry. I'll have to make you uncomfortable with writing your own rules in life. You thought you were able to rule your own life, and I'm after that self-reliance. I'm calling you back. Now look, tonight, we don't face the army of Midian. We face an even more dangerous enemy. Sin, the root of idolatry. Sin is always about your heart being ruled by something other than your Redeemer. And you have no independent ability to defeat the enemy in your life. So what did God do? God told Gideon, I will be with you. Surely I will be with you. So God sent the one who is the ultimate fulfillment of that phrase. I will be with you. The one who is God with us. He sent Emmanuel. And in strength, he lived a way that in weakness you and I can't. In obedience, he faced the death that we would have run from. In power, he walked away from that tomb. I think I might have just turned this off. Nope, I didn't. In power, he walked away from the tomb so that in him, we could have everything that we need for life and godliness. Our hope today is exactly where it was for Gideon. Not in our strength. Not in our wisdom. But in God's power. And God's wisdom. Hope is found in those six covenant words. Surely I will be with you. So in moments when I feel weak, it's an honest assessment. I'm weak. In moments when I'm confused, I'm struggling in my own sin. In moments when I'm not up to the task, I shouldn't run from God. I should run to God. I shouldn't quit. I should press toward the mark. I should walk forward in faith because why? Because Emmanuel has come and he is with me. I can do what God's enabled me or God's called me to do because God will enable me to do it as I submit to him. And that's where I have to find myself and my knees before him. Let's stand this morning with our heads or this evening with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. And I I, I apologize for this. I'm going to try to change something real quick. Those of you in the sound booth, just so there's nobody playing piano or anything like that, if you'll just play the music that Dawn sang to earlier for our time of invitation. I want to leave. I don't want anybody to have any responsibility right now. But I want to open the invitation up to us to say, Lord, I'm acknowledging tonight my weakness. I'm acknowledging tonight that I need you. I don't need my circumstances to necessarily be better. I don't, if my circumstances are going to draw me to you, Lord, then, then please let me use those things to be drawn closer to you. The invitation is open to you tonight as the music is played I pray tonight that we would be honest, get an honest assessment of who we are and where we are and what we're doing in this life and maybe what God is doing in this life and say, Lord, I want to ask those two questions. What are you doing in my life and how do you want me to respond? And then commit yourself to respond in that way. To say, I want to do what God has called me to do. The invitation is open. I pray that we would respond to God as he's spoken to us.